I wanted to start by just talking about words. Words have power. Words can be used for good. They can encourage. They can communicate truth. They can be used to share the gospel. Something that I got to do with a friend of mine this week. Words can be used to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But words can also be used for evil. Words can be used to cause someone else to stumble. I'm sad to say that's something that I've done before. Words can be used to lie, to speak hatred. Words can be used carelessly. Maybe not intentionally evil, but just with a lack of care. Let me just show you a few scriptures about words. And we're going to go full screen so you can see them. Proverbs 12.18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. See, we see words used for evil and words used for good. Proverbs 15.28, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Proverbs 16.24, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Proverbs 17.7 says, A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Proverbs 31.8-9, this is a great one. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. A way to use your words in a powerful and positive way. And then James 3, 9 to 10. With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Our words have power. We need to be careful with what we say. One encouragement for you this week is to go through Proverbs looking for verses on keeping your mouth shut or using few words. There are plenty of verses on this. And then go and practice that this week. If you think our words have power, God's words carry much more power. In Genesis 1, we see that God spoke a few words, and everything came into existence. And God said, let there be light. And it was so. And God said, on and on it goes, and it was so. His words are eternal. They never fail. His words condemn And his words give life. We get to have his words to read, study, and live by. I get asked often, Ben, do you hear God speak to you? Have you heard God speak to you? And my initial response always is yes, over and over and over again through the Bible. 
This is God's word given to you and to me. And God uses it to speak to us. So many times, so many interactions I've had with people where a verse pops to mind. Or as I'm reading, it's, it's speaking to the very situation that I'm praying about. As I'm just faithfully in God's word daily. God's words carry power. When Jesus showed up on earth, his words were at the center of attention. His words drew people to follow him, to change their lives. We just learned about Zacchaeus. We learned about the blind beggar who were drawn to Jesus by his words. Peter even says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus' words caused people to walk away from him. We just learned about the rich young ruler who asked Jesus a question, and Jesus' response caused the man to walk away sad. We see the crowds, oftentimes disturbed by the words that Jesus used, and walking away. Jesus' words caused people to hate him, to want him dead. In fact, his words got him crucified. In today's passage, Jesus' words are angering others to the point that they want him dead. And then they want to use words in return to trip Jesus up, to cause him to make a mistake. But their plans fail, and Jesus has the final word. Go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 20, and we're going to read today's passage. And as you open up to Luke chapter 20, I would invite you to stand in honor of God's word as we read. We're going to read Luke 20, starting in verse 19 and going all the way through verse 40. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. 
And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. God, this morning, as we dive into your word, I pray that you will speak. God, these are your words, and you have something you want to say to us, something you want to communicate to us. So let us be attentive. Let us listen. Let us hear what you have for us, God. Please remove all distractions, and um, God, just allow us to focus on you right here, right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've got two interactions in this passage, and there are some similarities in these two actions. Both begin with underhanded questions. Both are intended to trap or trip up Jesus. Both present a false dichotomy. And in both, Jesus' answer is so striking that it shuts up the people looking to attack him. Let me give you just a little bit of context first. It's helpful to look at the bigger picture as we're diving into these. Now, Jesus just came into Jerusalem. This is where he's been headed for over half of the book of Luke. He's had his heart fixed on Jerusalem and has been making his way there, and now he's finally there. And when he enters, he enters in a way that made the religious elite, the Pharisees, scribes, and chief priests, he made them angry. And then after he does that, he goes in and disrupts the temple and the sale and things that are going on there, putting them all to shame. The priests and the scribes then challenge his authority and get shut down. And then Jesus tells a parable that puts them in a really bad light. Again, in verse 19, it says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on them at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So Jesus is here in Jerusalem, and as far as the Pharisees are concerned, he has done nothing but come after them and attack them. And when you take all of these things and put them together, you see that, gosh, this paints a bleak picture for them. Attack, 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 attack. Maybe some of you read Jim's devotional in the post uh, that was sent out on Monday. And what Jim does is he takes basically everything that's happened since the beginning of the year and kind of walks through up until now. And as I read that and looked at that, I was like, wow, like it brings a lot of weight when you put it all together. And that's exactly what's happening here. When we take all these things that happened one after the other and put them all together, we see and understand why the Pharisees and chief priests and scribes are frustrated. 
It helps us climb into their skin and understand them a little bit better. Now, I don't know about you, but I've definitely been there before. I've been frustrated with God. So frustrated that I didn't want anything to do with him. But he didn't give up on me. And he spoke the final word I needed to hear that shut me up and drew me back to him. So lest we be quick to wag a finger at the Pharisees, I wanted to make sure that we all see that many of us have been there too. But the difference between anyone that calls Jesus their Lord and the Pharisees is what they did with their frustration. The Pharisees leaned into it. They let it fester and grow and pursued Jesus' death. I, and many others like me, humbled myself, confessed my sin, and came back to Jesus. So though we can understand the plight of the Pharisees, it doesn't mean we have to follow their path. So that's just a little bit of what's going on and why the Pharisees here are so frustrated. And I'm using Pharisees uh, in lieu of scribes, chief priests. It's all the same group of people. So let's dive in and look at how Jesus has the final word. Now, with both of these interactions, we're going to talk about the specific context around the raised issue. Then we'll talk about a false dichotomy that's been raised. And finally, we'll discuss the solution around both of these, which is having a heavenly mindset. So let's look at Jesus' final words. First, he has the final word on allegiance. Verses 19 to 22. The scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now again, they were mad because of the parable and everything that had just happened. But they didn't do anything. They didn't act on that anger because of how much support Jesus had. That's what it means when it says they feared the people. So what needs to happen here for them to get at Jesus? They need to turn the people against Jesus. So they send in spies, people that look sincere, but are really only there for evil. And this wasn't something that was just happening then. I'm sure as some of Luke's readers are, are reading this specific passage they read about these spies and then they look around the room and they wonder, are there spies even in our midst right now? Are there people that are here that are intentionally only here to trip us up, to knock down the name of Jesus? Jesus says to beware of the false prophets uh, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We also need to be discerning, realizing that there are those even today that are intending to trip up the church in this way. I've come across multiple people with this agenda. So look at the fruit of those around you. 
bring the truth into light. We need to be aware that the devil is constantly at work wanting to stop the work of the church. And our best defense in all of this is the truth, to bring their craftiness into the light. So be aware of that. And the Pharisees were here trying to trip up Jesus. And it's important for us to see that and recognize that even today there are people that are trying to do the same thing. So they send in spies, and then they come up with a crafty question. And in doing so, they first embellish this with, well, frankly, lies. First, they call Jesus teacher, which if you go through the book of Luke, the, the phrase teacher, the title teacher, was often used around people that weren't quite sure exactly who Jesus was, what his role was. And so they'd call him teacher. Well, okay, he's a teacher. It's a non-committal word. It's kind of like a safe word. And so the Pharisees use these, this same word, well, teacher. And then they go on and try to show the crowd that they're on Jesus' side, even though everything they say is a lie. They say, oh, you speak and teach rightly. <laughs> they don't think that's true at all. Then they say that you show no partiality. Ah, they disagree with that too. They say that you truly teach the way of God. In their minds, he doesn't. But all of this is to show the crowd, hey, we're on your side, crowd, like we think that Jesus is great. But we do have this question. They're trying to get the crowd on their side. Remember, their ultimate goal is to turn the crowd against Jesus. And so then they toss out this question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? And for what they're intending to accomplish, it's a great question. Because at this time, they were under Roman rule. The Jews hated having to pay this tribute. Now, this tribute wasn't a lot of money, but it was a constant reminder that they were under Roman control. So, here was their goal in asking this question. If Jesus responded and said, yes, they should give tribute to Caesar, then his answer would turn the crowd against him. Whoa, 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 you're in support of Caesar? That's kind of putting you against us. That's saying that, that, that Rome is good and that what they're doing is good. And so that would accomplish what the Pharisees are trying to do. It would turn the crowd against Jesus by Jesus, Jesus saying, yes, give tribute to Caesar. However, if Jesus said, no, you're not supposed to give tribute to Caesar, then he would uh, be marked by Rome as a zealot. He would probably be imprisoned. He would most likely be executed. And again, it would accomplish what the Pharisees were trying to do, which was to get rid of him. And so either way Jesus answered, they're like, great, we've got him. So this is the question that's tossed out. But the problem is that this question poses a false dichotomy. It poses this idea that this is an either or. Either you give and, and pay tribute and have allegiance to Rome, or you give and pay tribute and have allegiance to to God. But Jesus, in his response, is showing them that both are possible. 
He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Guys, this isn't an either or. This is a both and. None of the Pharisees would say that they were in allegiance to Rome. But in being able simply to produce a Roman coin shows that they were already accepting and living in their circumstance by accepting and using the currency of Rome. And in that sense, they were giving their allegiance to Rome. Yeah, sure, we're under Roman rule. We're using their currency. But of course, their full allegiance was to God in their minds. And Jesus' response is showing that both are possible. Now, this is key in any country where the government doesn't prioritize the morals and rights of the Christ follower, which is pretty much every country. I've heard people paint a picture of our current situation as an either-or. Either we obey the government or we obey God. And that's simply another false dichotomy. Right now, we're in a unique time, church, where we're being told that we're not allowed to physically gather together. And some have have painted it as a dichotomy. Either we, we disobey, which means we have allegiance to God, or we obey, which means we have allegiance to the government and don't have allegiance to God. But friends, this is a false dichotomy. Right now, what we need to do, church, is unite, is to work together and not pit ourselves against each other. Jesus says, no city or house divided against itself will stand. And he also says, as he's praying to God, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Just because a church is obeying the government, it doesn't mean that it is no longer in allegiance to God. Just because someone wants to disobey the government, it doesn't mean that they want to overthrow the government or don't respect the government anymore. This issue around whether we should worship or physically together or not worship, singing, all that kind of stuff, it's a really difficult issue. I've talked to Christians that love the Lord, that love his word, and and, and have dove into his word and, and tried to seek the truth on this, that have been fully convinced on both sides. Some that say, yes, we need to obey in this time. Some that have said, fully convinced, no, we need to stand up against the government. Some that have landed in the middle and are like, I'm not really sure. It's a difficult issue. And so what's our job right now as a church? Our job is to unite as a church, to fight for what we agree on instead of fighting over what we disagree on. This quote by Mark Buchanan sums it up well. Christian unity at its deepest and yet simplest is this. Christ Jesus indwells you and he indwells me. We have been joined to the Father through the work of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit. So whatever makes us different could not possibly be greater than what makes us alike. Whatever divides us cannot possibly be stronger than what brings us together. If Jesus Christ is with you and Jesus Christ is with me, then what we have in common exceeds 
everything we don't. Don't get tripped up and, and, and caught up around this issue and allow it to divide you from other believers. Friends, we have something beautiful in common, and that is that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. So let's unite around that. Let's let that be our message, and let's push that towards others. Because people need to know Jesus. People need to know Jesus. And you can have the opportunity to reach out to someone just over FaceTime, just over a phone call, just sitting in their front yard six feet away with masks on. Guess what? You can be the light that someone needs. So let's unite around that and fight for that and show people who Jesus is and why they need him and not get tripped up with this other stuff. Yes, let's dialogue. Yes, let's talk about it. But this is where we need to focus. What's important to catch in all of this is that the commonality is around our allegiance to Jesus. Which brings us to how we can deal with this false dichotomy. We need a heavenly mindset. Let me read to you out of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21 says this. It says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you about and now even tell you with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Friends, our citizenship is in heaven. And so it's important not to get so wrapped up in what's happening around us that we forget this fact. Now, do we get involved with what's going on? Yes, of course. Do we pursue truth and act on it here on earth? Yes, of course. But we have to do that all knowing that this is not our home. There is more than all of this wrestle and struggle that we're facing. Which brings us to Jesus' final word on heaven. So we move down to this second interaction. And there came to him some Sadducees. Now, Sadducees are similar to the Pharisees. They're not opposed to the Pharisees, but they differed on one issue. And when I was in eighth grade, I was, uh, I believe it was in eighth grade, I was taking a Bible class, and I learned that the Sadducees were sad, you see. See? The Sadducees were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. That's always been stuck in my mind. Every time I read about the Sadducees, the Sadducees were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. But they were very focused on the law. Uh, They were very focused and they believed in the, the five books of Moses. And they were very contrary to Jesus. Now, though we don't know the motive behind their question, with the surrounding context, we can guess. We can figure it out. 
So here right before that, there's uh, some scribes and, and teachers of the law that are here trying to trip Jesus up. And then this interaction with the Sadducees, guess what? It's the same motive. They're here to try to trip Jesus up. Now they quote this marriage law, which comes out of Deuteronomy 25, which says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. So that's what they were referring to when they say Moses wrote for us. They were quoting the Old Testament. And they offer quite a ridiculous scenario here. A woman goes through seven brothers. These, these seven brothers all wind up married to the same woman and no kids through all of them. And so then they pose the question, which of these seven brothers will be her husband in heaven? Now again, here we have a false dichotomy that's tossed out. The Sadducees are trying to show that there's no resurrection, that there's no heaven. And so they create this false dichotomy. They create this ridiculous scenario. And in doing so, they're saying, look, here's the two options. Option one is that people are married in heaven which makes things really, really confusing because this lady's been married to all seven of these guys. Or option number two is that this whole thing is ridiculous and there's no heaven at all. And they think that Jesus won't be able to answer or make sense of their question. They think that God hadn't thought of that. And so they're hoping he'll concede and say, that, you're right, there's no heaven. Man, I, I, I didn't even think of that scenario. They thought that God had missed something. Don't we fall into that trap sometimes? God, you you must have forgotten about this. Or, God, you didn't consider this scenario. We may not say it that way, but that can easily lead to misinterpreting Scripture. You're reading a passage, you see an inconsistency uh, with how you see or understand things, and you assume that your interpretation is correct. That's exactly what they're doing. They're looking at one part of Scripture, interpreting it through their lens, and telling God he must have gotten something wrong. Let me say that again. They're looking at one part of Scripture, interpreting it through their lens, and telling God he must have got something wrong. Now, Jesus' answer exposes how they're wrong. It exposes their lack of understanding And I love this. He uses scripture to do it. He tells them that they've assumed something about heaven, if there was one in their mindset, that isn't true. That there's no marriage in heaven. He also makes it clear that not all will be in heaven. And he takes a little jab at the Sadducees. Look again at verse 35. He says, But to those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, dot, dot, dot. Uh, you know, you guys might not be worthy to attain to resurrection. Not all are going to be in heaven. But then he speaks to their misunderstanding that there is no heaven at all. Look at verses 37 and 38. He says, but in the passage about, uh, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, so he's quoting Moses, Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. He's saying that if Moses called God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he wasn't saying, oh, he was the God of those people that used to live in the past. No, he's saying that he is still the God of those people, which must mean that they're alive, which must mean that there is a resurrection. He uses Scripture, Scripture they recognize, to help them see the error of their thinking. Now, this should be a huge motivator for you to study your Bible more. Dive into the Word so that you can witness to those that claim the Bible but have faulty theology. I've done this before in, in a conversation with Mormons, knowing that, that they stand by the Word of God, but there's some things in here that are inconsistent with their faulty theology, and so I've pointed it to them. And one time I, I pointed out a verse and, and handed my Bible uh, to a Mormon. He's like, well, hold on, let me look at that. And he walks away and starts studying it, and you can see the confused look on, their, on his face. Know your Scripture. Dive into it. So then we get to have a heavenly mindset as we look at this. We, we move past the false dichotomy and have a heavenly mindset. Now, marriage in this time, in Bible times, was most of the time contractual, practical, and usually arranged. Uh, so Jesus saying that there isn't marriage in heaven, wasn't necessarily as big of a blow as it may be to those of you who are married or who are hoping to be married someday. Or even who were married and aren't married anymore. And so we could look at this and go, wow, no marriage in heaven? Man, that's, that's kind of a bummer. Because I love my spouse and I, and I want to enjoy heaven with them. But friend, heaven is going to be so beyond what we could ever imagine or hope for. In 1 Corinthians 2, it says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. It's so beyond what we could even hope for or imagine. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There are things that we don't fully grasp about relationships with other people. There are things we don't fully grasp about God. We, we don't even come close to understand what it will be like to stare at him face to face. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around it. And so for those of you that may look at this and go, well, that's kind of disappointing, it's not. It means that our concept of relationship and commitment pales in comparison to what our understanding of that will be when we get to heaven. It's going to be so much greater than what we could ever imagine. Now, in both of these interactions, Jesus got the final word. Now, what does it mean to have the final word? Well, in an argument or competition, it means that you win. 
My son Gabriel and I were, were playing a card game, and we were going back and forth, and I kept saying, man, I got you. I'm coming after you. I'm going to beat you. Well, he won. And in him winning, that means that he got the final word. doesn't matter what I said before that. He got the final word. In a direction, order, or command, it means that you have the ultimate authority. I was late coming home uh, one night when I was living at my parents' house, and I flew down my street and pulled into the driveway because I wanted to get there as quickly as possible. Well, unbeknownst to me, as I was flying down, I flew by a police car. And about 10 minutes later, we get a knock on the door, and it's the policeman. And he's talking to my dad and saying, this car right here, which was my car, flew by me way too fast down the street. And after the conversation with the police officer, my dad closed the door, turned around, put out his hand and said, Ben, give me your keys. And I was done driving. I was done driving because my dad had the final word. He had the authority to take those away from me. He had the final word. Now, to surrender the final word to another requires one thing, humility. Let's take a look at Jesus' final words. First in verse 26. It says, And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. And then jump down to verses 39 and 40. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Jesus had the final word. In both interactions, Jesus won the argument. He beat their little games that they were playing. In both interactions, Jesus showed that he had the ultimate authority. He had the ability to speak into these issues in a way that they didn't expect. In both of these interactions, Jesus humbled those that were standing up to him. They were attacking him. They marveled at his answer and couldn't say anything else. They no longer dared to ask him any question. (coughs) And one of the scribes says, Teacher, you have spoken well. I imagine him saying that a little bit sheepishly. Because, well, duh, of course Jesus spoke well. They were initially unwilling to give Jesus the final word. And maybe that's been a stumbling block for you. Maybe you've been unwilling to give Jesus the final word in an area of your life. Maybe you want to win. Maybe you want to have the ultimate authority. And I'd strongly encourage you to start considering surrendering the final word to Jesus, to humble yourself. Don't be like these guys. It took them a difficult interaction with Jesus to be humbled. Maybe today is the beginning of you surrendering the final word to Jesus in whatever area you've been hanging on to. Now, in saying the words that he did, Jesus shuts these guys up. And maybe that may seem a little harsh for our good doctor. But remember, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. These scribes, chief priests, and Sadducees were lost. Their foolish hearts were darkened. 
And Jesus wanted to show them the way. He wanted to show them the truth. He wanted to show them the life. He wanted to show them himself. Jesus doesn't just have the final word, but Jesus is the final word with a capital W. If you've been following along and filling in your notes, you notice that it says the final blank, the final blank, and the first one is a lowercase w, but the second one is a capital W because Jesus is the final word. Some of you have been looking at this title slide and and noticing these words there. And uh, these words are from Philippians 2 where it says that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God gave him the name that is above all names. The final word is Jesus. Flip over to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In John, there are seven I am statements that Jesus makes, showing that Jesus is the final word. He says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Each one of those statements point to Jesus as the final word. Not just that he has the final word, but that he is the final word. Jesus is the final word. All are humbled before him. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every single person will do that. And it will take humility. Friends, Jesus is the final word. Because he wins. Dive into the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21 talks about this victory that Jesus has. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and the end. All is done. He wins. But Jesus is the final word because he has the ultimate authority. Look at this in John 1. In the beginning was the word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Ultimate authority. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, but he was before, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through the final word, Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus has the ultimate authority. Jesus wins. All will be humbled before Jesus because Jesus is the final word. Let me pray. Jesus, you are the final word. What does that do in me? Oh, that stirs me up. First of all, that stirs me up to just tell others about you because they need to know. Because they will be humbled at some point, but God, I want it to be now where they get to confess that you are Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I I want people to do that now and here where they get to live their life celebrating you and worshiping you. But God also, it stirs me just to an attitude of gratefulness and thankfulness. I'm thankful that I don't have to worry, that I don't have to be concerned, that I don't have to live my life troubled and concerned, God. But I know and I'm confident in the fact that you win, that you have the final word, and I get to trust in that. Thank you for not only having the final word, for giving us your word, but for being the final word, the final word, the word that we always get to go back to. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.